Hi everybody, my name is Ben and welcome to Headcanon, the podcast dedicated to exploring the vast reaches of cinematic universes that never were and never shall be. Every week on this podcast, I select a movie at random from a carefully curated list of some of the weirdest and most obscure movies I've never seen, I watch and review it, and then I try to imagine what it would be like if I was given the opportunity to expand it into a soulless, cash-grab multimedia franchise. I pitch sequels, prequels, spin-offs, crossovers, gritty reboots, TV shows, video games, and even porn parodies, taking movies that never got the attention they deserve and giving them far more attention than they deserve. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This is episode 27, or episode 7 of season 3, depending on how you're counting. And if you listened to last week's episode, I talked about a movie called Exterminator City from 2005, and I'm not going to talk any more about that movie because it's I have nothing more to say. It's the weirdest thing I've watched for this podcast, and it'll probably hold that title for quite some time. Just listen to that episode and find the movie if you can. But at the end of that episode, I said that the the randomly selected category for this week would be animated film, and the randomly selected film would be The Flight of Dragons from 1982. And full disclosure, I should point out that this movie kind of violates a uh, rule of mine, or or maybe it violates a kind of rule. I, I don't know if it technically counts as a rule, but I always say, you know, I have a list of the weird and obscure movies that I've never seen. I actually have seen this movie before. I saw it when I was a kid. I don't really remember much about it, and I, I like to make exceptions for for those kind of movies just because, you know, mostly I like to discover movies for the first time and be surprised and, and kind of find these diamonds in the rough, but I also feel like it's interesting to rediscover things that I, I maybe don't remember so well and see if I can reevaluate my own nostalgia, and so that, that's what I'll be doing today with The Flight of Dragons. I... I remember liking this movie as a kid, but that that means nothing as to whether or not I'll like it now. My nostalgia goggles have betrayed me many times in the past, so I don't really have any expectations for this. It's produced by Rankin and Bass, which, if you recognize those names, you'll, you'll probably associate them with the, the creepy Christmas specials, the stop-motion movies that they bring out every year, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, and Year Without a Santa Claus. And... and a lot of people don't realize that they actually did a lot of other movies that, that weren't those. They, they did a lot of traditionally animated stuff, like The Flight of Dragons. Uh, the Last Unicorn was another one they, they did. Uh, I, I never saw that as a kid. I don't know why. I don't know if maybe it was like I associated unicorns with girly things. or I mean, I, I don't think I was picking my own movies when I was this young. I, I assume it was just whatever my parents were exposing me to. So maybe it was like they were trying to force gender roles upon me. I, I doubt that, but I don't know. Uh, but anyway, they did that. They, I think they did the Thundercats or, or maybe co-produced it uh, as well as the Silverhawks. And I think, wasn't there one where there were sharks as well? Like the Tiger Sharks, I want to say? Is that, am I am I imagining that? Did I just invent that? Is that a Mandela effect thing? Anyway, uh, so they did those and they did a lot of live action stuff as well. They, they did a movie called The Bushido Blade, which was like a proto uh, Shanghai Noon kind of sh- like samurai cowboy movie. Uh, they did uh, the Bermuda Depths, which is like a creature from the Black Lagoon movie. They did King Kong Escapes, which when I do my franchise retrospective on King Kong, I'm definitely going to do that movie. A uh, bunch of movies on my list. I'm hesitant to put any of the Christmas specials on my list or holiday specials just because a lot of people know them. They're very well known. Plus, I feel like you know they're, they're part of a lore with like you know Christmas characters like Santa Claus and Rudolph, so it feels like a franchise already. The only exception I might make is... Uh, they have a movie called Jack Frost, which I feel like Jack Frost as a character is, is tangential enough to that lore that he kind of qualifies for an exemption. And also, I know at the end of that movie, he fights a, a cyborg Russian czar, so I feel like it's weird enough to qualify for an exception. And also, The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus I might want to check out again. I just remember that even though it's about Santa Claus, it also has like a pantheon of nature gods in it and a lot of weird shit they added in. It's based on the L. Frank Baum book, so he added a lot of his own lore, so that might be interesting to watch again. 
Uh, and then I, th- I think there's a couple other stop motion movies I, w- I saw on my list that I was interested in. Uh, Willie McBean and his Magic Machine, which is about time travel. The Mad Monster Party, which I believe is classic monsters getting together for a shindig. So that that sounds amazing. Uh, so a lot of Rankin and Bass stuff. The, the, the Flight of Dragons, it's based on two books, apparently, that they, they kind of merge together. One is called The Flight of Dragons, and it's written by Peter Dickinson. But from what I understand, it's not a narrative book. It's, it's like a, a fake history text positing that dragons used to exist, but they went extinct. And then it tries to apply like science and physics to, to how they might have functioned, how they might have evolved, you know, how they take flight and breathe fire and all that sort of thing. So I guess this book was popular. They wanted to make a movie about it, but they realized they had no story. So they took another book from a guy named Gordon Dixon, not to be confused with Peter Dickinson, uh, and his book was called The Dragon and the George, which is apparently the first book of a nine-part series called the, the Dragon Knight series, which I've read, not read any of these books, by the way. This is the, the headcanon book club. You have to read all these books to come back and, and be conversant about it. And I will say this does trouble me a bit as far as my expectations go, just because I feel like any time they, they try to do this, they try to merge different kinds of material together and create like a Franken plot. Uh, that, that rarely bodes well. But like I said, I, I do remember liking this, but again, I was a stupid kid, so I don't know. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and pause the podcast now, and then I'm going to watch The Flight of Dragons, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to tell you what I think. And I'm back. 
and I've watched The Flight of Dragons from 1982, produced and directed by Rankin Bass, and um, I think I can pretty safely say that I wasn't a stupid kid for liking this back then. Uh, it pretty much held up. Uh, I, there were some things about the, the plot, the story, that and the themes more than anything that you know didn't really hold up for me or that that I probably didn't notice when I was a kid or just didn't care about but for the most part this this was a fun movie and I would recommend it especially if you love animation as much as I do admittedly I am an easy lay for animated movies it, it takes a lot for me to not like one but even if you're just a fan of fantasy in general uh, this is something you're going to want to check out if, if you haven't already seen it and before I even get to the story, I just want to talk about the animation of this movie specifically, because this movie looks gorgeous. I mean, it wasn't a theatrical release. I guess it was home video, and I probably saw it on TV now that I think about it. But, I mean, it, it, and it looks like an 80s movie. It doesn't look like a modern movie today. When I say it holds up, I wouldn't say it holds up in that regard, but it looks better than a lot of theatrically re released 80s animated films. And I mentioned they produced Thundercats as well. This looks a lot like that. I, I guess they were all co-produced by a Japanese company, so it's this weird synthesis of, of American and Japanese animated sensibilities, and it really works. Uh, the design work, a lot of the designs apparently came from the Flight of Dragons book because they, they wanted the dragons to look, I guess, realistic or insofar as a dragon can look realistic, but the idea that, that everything they can do is physically possible, and part of that is because you know, a good chunk of the, the plot of the movie is about justifying the physics of dragons, uh, which is, again, inspired by, by the book it's based on, even if the, the narrative is sort of completely different, I think. I, this is the big problem I have with the movie, getting to the story, is that I don't know that the merging of the two books, or at least the, the, the source materials, worked very well. I think they were working at cross-purposes. I like the idea of the, just like a realistic take on dragons. How could dragons work in the real world or seeding them back into our history in, in, a, in a kind of an imaginary context? And I also like a lot of the ideas in what clearly came from the other book, the, the, the Dragon and the George. It's, I mean, a pretty simple quest narrative. It's, it's an adventure with a lot of interesting characters, and they, they go on a mission and, and encounter a bunch of magical creatures along the way. All of that stuff is good. All the core elements are there and... and pretty much all done well, but the the synthesis uh, doesn't really work out quite well. Mostly because, and, and like, I would have seen either of these movies. If they'd done, like, a fake documentary of, oh, what if dragons were real? I'm sure they've probably already done that, and I don't think they were doing it much back then. I know they had, like, Chariot of the Gods, but I know you see it a lot more now. They, I think they did one about mermaids recently, uh, and you see, like, mockumentaries that are take, sort of meant to be taken seriously like that, and, and that would have been cool. Or a story just about a magical adventure would have been cool. And and I was worried, knowing that this was a quest movie, that you know they did a Lord of the Rings series uh, as well. Uh, Rankin and Bass produced a, a series of animated Lord of the Rings movies. I didn't mention them in my uh, list of things that are, that are already on my list to watch because I will never do a Lord of the Rings episode of this podcast. Because if I did, I'd have to watch all of the, the live-action Lord of the Rings movies, all the Hobbit movies, all the animated ones. It's too fucking much. I'm never going to do it. I actually did it once just to, just to watch them, not for a podcast, and never again. But anyway, my worry was that uh, this would just be like, well, those Lord of the Rings movies we did were successful. Let's find some other fantasy property with dragons in it and just do that. And, and that's not what this was. You can definitely get the sense that they cared about making this as good as it could be. It's just that, that like I said, the mix of the two stories they don't really work well. And, and the big part of that is the thing that actually makes this movie kind of 
more interesting than your typical fantasy movie is uh, like you know I mentioned that that science and physics applied to the magical. The main character of the movie is a fish out of water from modern day, or rather modern day '80s, and he's brought into this fantasy world and he's viewing it through a scientific lens. He's the one sort of pointing out, oh, this is how dragons must work. And at one point, he becomes a dragon. He's mer- his consciousness is merged with that of a dragon, and so he has to learn it sort of firsthand. And He's sort of midichlorianing, if that's a verb, uh, how dragons work you know, as he's learning how to be a dragon. And that, that's a really interesting concept. The, the problem is more of like an overall problem with the, the setup for the movie. They don't really understand the dichotomy between science and magic. And that sounds weird because it could be whatever you want it to be. Science can be opposed to magic. It could be the same as magic, or magic could be just another form of science, or vice versa. Or, or it could be anything you want it to be because obviously it's magic is fictional. So its relation to science can be anything. But this, it's everything. They, they don't really know what to do with it. At first, you, you get this idea that science is, it's like science versus magic. That you, you get this really good visual metaphor where these fairies uh, get caught up in the wheel of a mill and they almost die. And this wizard's like, you, you gotta stop. Your science is killing our magic. And, but then he can't stop him because the magic force within him is waning. And so that, that's kind of an interesting setup. And then the idea is they, they bring this guy from what is actually the future. It's not like one magic world and one non-magic world. The magic world is the past, and the future doesn't have magic in it, and there's a time travel element, and you're kind of figuring out, trying to figure out, like, why is it that the future doesn't have magic if the past did? And the idea is this wizard is trying to create this magical world separate from the world of man to protect magical creatures from science. But then he starts talking about how, like, science needs magic, that much of science is reverse engineering magical abilities. If you look through a crystal ball, that's basically what a TV is and all these things. So which is it? Is it science as opposed to magic or science requires magic? And then uh, later on, as, as this character is, like I said, pointing out the midichlorians of all of these magical, mystical things, at, at some point you have to say, well, is magic just another form of science? And then at the end, it seems to confirm that, where... Uh, the character basically beats the, the the evil wizard guy by spouting off all of these scientific theorems. Like, it's, I mentioned he merges consciousnesses with a dragon, and the way he escapes that is he realizes that two things can't occupy the same space at the same time. And just by realizing that, he's not a dragon anymore. And then he, he starts talking about you know, various scientific laws and formulas, and he just sort of says them as if they're, they're magic incant- incantations. So, science is beating magic, but at this point, science might as well be magic. The, these... Like I said, these formulas might as well be incantations. So the movie never really knows or settles on what it wants to say about this division between magic and science. And it's so preoccupied with that. That's It's sort of like the main theme of the movie. And I feel like one of those books had one very settled idea of what that meant, and one of these books had another settled idea of what that meant. I think The Flight of Dragons is all about, you know, magic being another form of science, translating magic into science, whereas I think The Dragon and the George, if much of the narrative is taken from that, I think that has the opposing view, that that magic is paramount, and, you know, science is just another form of magic. So to merge them together... It, it never quite feels right to me. And I feel like maybe that's me overthinking this kid's movie a little more than I, I need to. Because just as an adventure story, I mean, it's fairly simple. Like I said, it's a quest narrative. There's a lot of, like, like hero's journey stuff. And just a, it's a magical adventure with a bunch of characters and fighting magical creatures, finding other magical creatures that are not worthy of fighting, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I kind of got lost in that sentence. But, you know... 
as as that goes, it's very fun. It's very well done. Like I said, the animation's great, but the design work is great. There's a lot of really punchy action sequences. At one point, they fight this giant ogre with like one eye and a peg leg, and and then obviously there's a bunch of dragons in it. There is a flight of dragons. There's like a herd of them that gets taken over by the bad guy. The bad guy Omadon is this evil wizard, and uh, the idea is that all the the wizards, like the wizard council, meets, and and the the good wizard uh, Coralinus is pitching this idea of. of uh, creating this magical world and separating themselves off from the human world and all the other wizards agree like oh this is a good idea but then omadon he's the the, the wizard of, of darkness he's the wizard of evil magic but he's not i mean he, he is evil but they kind of welcome him into their group like evil is just as much a part of nature as anything else so you know you have a, a place at the table and and he's not saying like i'm evil for the sake of evil but he rejects the plan because he's like well, fuck that! I'm not surrendering to humans. Magic is more powerful than science. I'm gonna pervert their science and and until they destroy themselves with it. And there's this this scene where if you've ever seen the movie Wizards, the Ralph Bakshi fantasy movie, which I'm not spoiling anything. That's not what I'm gonna cross this over with. I thought about it, but that's not what I'm gonna do. Uh, but it's a scene very reminiscent of that. They even have the atomic bomb at one point. If you've never seen Wizards, it's like a post-apocalyptic movie where the fairies come back after we destroy ourselves. Really cool movie. I will probably watch it for the podcast eventually, but uh, it, it kind of reminded me of that. And that so that's his plan. And then and then they sort of whole, forget about the whole idea of like science is threatening our magic world. And then the the thing becomes oh well, we got to stop Omadon. So that's the quest now. So they have to summon all of these heroes. And there are ancient roles. There's this thing called the Great Antiquity that they all worship and. It establishes the roles of what a quest means, how many people need to be on it, and then one of them, the antiquity demands, is summoned from the future because he's a man of science and because he's, I think, I think the idea is he was the only one that could ultimately beat the bad guy at the end, which he does. Uh, I, I guess I spoiled a lot there, but I, I don't think it really matters. I don't think it matters. I mean, you kind of know what's going to happen as it, even before it happens. That's maybe one of the other problems I have with the movie, just in terms of the the tropes and cliches of a fantasy story. It has a lot of that like random illogical fantasy bullshit where. Like they'll, they'll get a thing sort of arbitrarily. Like the wizards all hand them these these magical artifacts, and they say what they can do, and you might need this on your adventure. And then, lo and behold, they happen to run into the exact perfect situation where the only way they could have possibly gotten out of that is using one of these magical items. Had they not had them, there was no other way out of that that perilous situation. And in this movie, they all happen all at once. Like, they get these things, and then you kind of forget about them. They go through the whole movie, and then it's like, oh, shit, yeah, that's right. We have these items, and in rapid succession, we encounter situations in which we need them to, to traverse. And so it feels kind of slipshod the way a lot of fairy tales and fantasies do. But that's, again, the kind of thing you just have to look past. It's a fantasy movie. You're just there to have fun and go on an adventure with these characters. And the characters are all really fun. You know, you have the, the main guy, Peter Dickinson. He's voiced by John Ritter, I guess. I, I didn't realize that going into it. And he, he like I said, he joins with this dragon, and, and he has to learn how to be a dragon, and he stumbles a lot. And he has this mentor, Smurgle, who's this kind of cantankerous old dragon who can't do any. He doesn't have as much fire in his belly anymore, and he can't fly as long as he used to. And so they have this really good rapport. There's this really, like, fun British knight, Orion Neville Smythe, who, uh, he's, like, obsessed with chivalry and, and has, works this, on this moral code that often leads him into very silly situations. They get a, they get a talking wolf at one point named Arg, I think, and he's, he's voiced by Victor Bono, and he has this mysterious origin. You never really know where he came from, but he's just a badass wolf that kills monsters. And, uh, they get Danielle, the archeress, who... Uh, 
there's a weird thing with the women in this movie. There's two central female characters. There's Melisande and, and Danielle. I, I was kind of wondering if, if George R. R. Martin took the, the name Melisandre from this movie, but they pronounce it Melisande. And, and then there's Del- Danielle the archer who just sort of meets them on their quest. A lot of the characters they meet on their quest are just like, hey, I just saw you take down that monster. You want, me, you want, your help, want my help with the next one? But these two characters, I feel like there was a version of the script where they were the same character because Melisande is uh, the, the daughter of Coralinus, the, the good nature wizard. And she seems like she's set up like she's going to go on the quest with them, but then Coralinus just goes, no, fuck you, you're my daughter, you're not going on that quest, you're staying here. And then she just stays at the house, and they keep cutting back to her, like she keeps getting visions of what they're going to face, but like they don't really add anything to, to anything, they're, they're, you just kind of get a preview of what the next thing is. I don't know if maybe that was designed for television, like, oh no, the next thing you're going to see after the commercial break. But uh, I feel like later on Danielle comes in and she has she's a badass like, kind of archer lady and they make a point of like she's a g-g-g-g-girl. Like she takes her hat off and she's got long flowing hair. And like the, the other reason I think these characters might have been the same character in the original script is uh, Orion says that he's in love with Melisande, but then later on he seems to be in love with Danielle. And so I, I wonder if maybe they just kind of like work them into separate characters and I, I don't know why. Maybe to have more female characters in the movie, which if so pretty progressive I, i'm guessing it's probably uh, less progressive than that i'm, I'm thinking it was just maybe I, I don't even maybe just an arbitrary decision but but it really kind of rankled me but but danielle is a cool character and uh, they get giles who I, they call him an elf but he looks more like a hobbit and he's a, a flute playing thief hobbit and just and there's just a lot of interesting set pieces in the movie a lot of interesting like i said it's, it's a fantasy adventure so they, they encounter a lot of crazy creatures there's the sand mercs which I, at first i thought they were crickets that you just saw their like eyes and they were chirping and the idea is if they all get together and chirp all at once it will drive people insane and but then you see them and they're actually like rats and this is where you, you meet the wolf he leaps he leaps at the queen sand merc and kills it and stops all the other ones you get an ogre fight. There's this, this ogre. I forget what his name is. The ogre of Glomwell something. And, and he has one leg and one eye, and th- he has three eyes, but uh, one of them is, is gouged out. And uh, the action sequences for for a movie like this, I wouldn't have expected them to be as as like kind of free flowing and just fun to watch as they were. And obviously, like I said, a lot of dragon action. Uh, the the bad guy. Well, they all all the wizards have their own like dragon familiar, and the bad guy's dragon keeps getting sent after them. And there's this weird worm that like secretes acid all over the desert. Uh, just a, a lot of cool stuff that you would expect from a kind of movie like this. And they 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 pull it off well. They execute it well, even if it isn't particularly innovative. And I guess my big problem with the movie is just that the one thing that is sort of interesting and innovative just wasn't pulled off well. That's the one place where they kind of drop the ball. But yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing that it might not even bother you. If you come at this just wanting a fantasy movie, you know, you can completely just put that out of your mind and not think about that and just watch all the fun sword fights and, and dragon fire and all that shit. And on that score, this is a good movie. It was fun. Uh, I, I, I mean, I would maybe even almost call it a classic of the time. I, I mean, it's not considered that. I think it's considered kind of a cult movie, as if every movie I watch on this podcast is essentially considered a cult movie. But this one, if it, if it isn't like an underrated classic, if, if it isn't one that a lot of people talk about and have fond memories of, I'd be surprised. I, I think this is something that, I guess I don't hear a lot about it, but... 
I get the feeling it's it's one of those movies where people forget about it, and then you go, hey, did you ever see that movie, The Flight of Dragons? And they go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that was really good. That was what it was for me, and it is really good. And, and uh, I, I think it's a movie that we should all show our kids today. I don't actually have kids, so I'm not showing them shit. But I think if you have kids, this is something you should probably show to your kids and, and get them set up for, uh, th- I guess, the kind of fantasy movie that they did in the 80s and they don't necessarily do today. This is like baby's first version of that. Like We talk about the 80s as you know kind of dark and maybe a little too dark. I don't think it's too dark. I think it's the perfect amount of dark. When you watch stuff like Return to Oz or The Dark Crystal or The Labyrinth, you know, movies that they had dark imagery that, that could give kids nightmares, I think that's a good thing. I think those kids should have nightmares because that'll inspire them to be creepy, interesting adults. And this is sort of a half measure of that. The stuff in The Flight of Dragons, it's not going to give them nightmares, but it's going to inspire them to watch the movies that will give them nightmares and make them better people as adults. So I'm, I'm saying it's, it's that kind of movie. That's how I'm recommending it. Or if you're just that kind of creepy kid in adult form, in an adult body, not in a creepy like pedophile way, but like in a, in a, a, a nostalgic man-baby way, and you love fantasy animated films like this, you're going to love this if you haven't already seen it. I think I guess the best way to describe Flight of Dragons, it's like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign come to life, and I, I feel like that's in the best way and the worst way. Uh, it, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing, uh, but uh, but overall, I think it makes for a good movie. At least for me, a kid that grew up with Dungeons and Dragons, it was it was a lot of fun for me. And and I'll leave this here so you can insert your own Dungeons and Dragons movie joke. Uh, for what it's worth. I mean, I recognize the first Dungeons & Dragons movie was terrible, but if you've never seen the third one, it's called The Book of Vile Darkness. I will recommend it. It's still a schlocky, straight-to-video movie, but it's actually kind of good. It it has a lot of stuff in it that indicates that people actually played the game before they made the movie, unlike the first two movies, but uh, I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, A quick recommendation for Dungeons & Dragons 3, The Book of Vile Darkness, and also The Flight of Dragons, which I just watched and very much enjoyed. Uh, so that, that's The Flight of Dragons. That's my review. Uh, it's a little shorter than my normal ones. I don't really have a lot more to, to say about it. I mean, again, other than the one thing I... And when I say I, I, it bothered me, I didn't hate it. It didn't ruin the movie for me. And, and everything else about this movie was so well executed. It was kind of perfect for what it was. Not amazing, not great, not the best thing I've ever seen, but... It's a solid watch, and, and I can't say that about a lot of the movies I've watched. Even the stuff that I've said I kind of like, or I have mixed feelings, but I'm coming on the positive side on it. This, it's solidly positive. I, I have very few complaints about this movie, and that's something I rarely say on headcanon. So that enough, that I was able to sit and watch a movie and not, uh, much like Exterminator City, go, Oh, I love that. Oh, I hate that. Oh, I love that. Oh, I fucking loathe that. Uh, this, I w- it was calm. It was... It didn't challenge me all that much, but it didn't have to. It was just a lot of fun. Uh, that's The Flight of Dragons. And and now I'm going to pause the podcast here. This might be my shortest podcast episode ever, but I'm going to pause it here. Then I'm going to come back with my 10-point plan for the, the Flight of Dragons cinematic universe. <laughs> I am victorious. Not quite yet. Well, well, the scientist. And how did you shed dragon, filthy little man-thing? As Gorbash slept, I suddenly felt myself, Peter Dickinson, and I thought, two things cannot occupy the same place at the same time. And the moment I comprehended that, voila, 
I guess logic is stronger than magic. Stronger than my magic? <laughs> no! I have gathered the sum total of the world's evil in one place. And that place is me. I am invincible. No magic stronger. I am the world. And the world is Omadan. can't do that. Why? Why, you insect? Why? Seven heads and each one a simpleton. Don't you know what you reach for isn't in that position anymore? The sun is the sun. I can see where it is. Where it was, pipsqueak. Any schoolboy knows that light travels at 186,300 miles per second. What you see is the sun's position eight and a half minutes ago. No magic but mine can move the sun. I command it. Not magic, gashead. Mathematics. And that's the answer to why antiquity chose me. You are magic, mere illusion. I am science, logic, and the truth. <laughs> Nothing so horrible could be real. I deny you. Deny me, and you deny all magic. Say it then. I deny all magic. Deny this. In battles for our Those incantations can't hurt me. I have some incantations of my own. How about a body in motion tends to stay in motion? Protons have 1,832 times the mass of electrons. All light is bent or refracted as it goes from one medium to another, save in a direction perpendicular to the interface between the two mediums. action of external conditions upon the variations from their specific type which individuals present. Gravity varies as to the inverse square of the distance. The velocity of light is equal to the wavelength times the frequency of vibration. The geometrical properties of the space-time continuum are determined by the masses present in space and time.
And I'm back, and I've got my 10-point plan for how to turn the Flight of Dragons into a a cinematic universe. And I, I guess it, I should probably mention that I, I think the Rankin and Bass cinematic universe should be a thing, shouldn't it? I, you know, I talked about I, I probably won't do, like, the, you know, the, the Rankin-Bass Christmas specials on the podcast, but... Like even just not even maybe a cinematic universe, maybe like a like a video game, like a fighting game with all the Rankin Bass characters, because they're all very visually interesting looking. But that's for another day. I was just a random thought I had. But anyway, this is the Flight of Dragons cinematic universe, and uh, as always, I should say spoilers abound from this point on. I I try not to spoil too much in the review proper, because but you know I I do have to do that if I'm going to pitch sequels and prequels. I have to explain the ending often, and I I will be doing that here. And and so I, if you don't want to be unspoiled, if, or at least any more than you already are, stop listening to the podcast now. Go watch The Flight of Dragons, and I do recommend you watch it. It's a fine film. And then come back, and then you can listen to me talk about it. Also, I do have uh, an email address and a website. If you found me on iTunes, as I imagine most people do, uh, you can also find me at my website at headcanonpodcast.blogspot.com. That's H-E-A-D-C-A-N-N-O-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T.blogspot.com. You can find all the podcast episodes there. Uh, if you did find me on iTunes, please you know rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. And I also have an email address. It's headcanonpodcast at gmo.com, spelled the same way, H-E-A-D-C-A-N-N-O-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T uh, at gmail.com. And, and you can send me comments, insults, uh, questions. I don't know what questions you might have for me. But uh, more importantly, requests. Uh, this is a, a request-based podcast sometimes. I'll take your request. Any movie you want me to watch and review and expand out into a cinematic universe, I will do that. Just send me an email. The, the, the normal caveats apply. If I can't afford the movie, if the only version of it available is like, like $200 for a VHS tape on Amazon, probably not going to swing for that. But if I can find it readily available and it's not like a snuff film or something really gross, I, I reserve the right to refuse any recommendation on that 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 grounds but I, I i mean there are very few movies that that i'm i'm gonna be too offended to want to watch like i always bring up a serbian film that's the one i would never i don't think i'd ever want to watch just because i don't want to watch that as a person regardless of having a podcast but anyway if you want to send me a movie i would do that movie for the most part uh so all of that out of the way i start with the sequel like I always do. And when I'm, I'm trying to build out these sequels and prequels and things, a lot of the, the time I'll, I'll kind of deconstruct the movie on a, a, like a larger conceptual level, and I'll try to think of like what would be the reverse of this movie or the natural next step of this movie, and I'll just try to break it down into its core individual elements. And this is kind of what I did with this sequel idea. You know, because you, you have a lot of sequels that are literally just the same movie repeated over again, and it's always really boring. It's just, you know, they... They just want to try the same formula again because they know it worked. This, I'm saying you reverse the formula completely. Uh, in the, the original Flight of Dragons, it's a, a guy from the present day going into this magical past. So I'm saying it's characters from a magical past flooding into the present day. And and the, the setup for this, and I do have to spoil the ending to the movie uh, in order to explain this. So again, spoilers. Uh, the end of the movie, you have, you have the, the main character, Peter Dickinson, and I, did I talk about that in the in my review? I, I, he's sort of like I said, he's a man from the the present or their future, and he's also Peter Dickinson. He's the author of the Flight of Dragons. It's sort of this meta thing where, like, he he hasn't written the book yet in the continuity of the movie, but he he will in the future. But eventually, he finds a library of unfinished books. It's a magical library, so he finds his own book that he hasn't written yet. And obviously, Peter Dickinson is the name of the author of the the book the movie is based on. 
again, not to be confused with Gordon Dixon, the author of the other book the movie's based on. And, and, and at the beginning of the movie, he's in the present, and he's created a board game, also called The Flight of Dragons, inspired by his unfinished book. Spoilers for the merchandise segment of this pitch. But anyway, that guy is, is the guy who goes back in, into this magical past, and he falls in love with uh, Coralinus' daughter, Melisande. It's not, that's not executed very well. That's not done or portrayed very well. He barely knows her. I mean, it's the kind of thing you, you accept in movies like this, especially kids' movies where people can kind of just fall in love with the drop of the hat. But I feel like a lot of this movie is mature enough where it's kind of glaring when it isn't with something like that where they're doing the standard, you know, prince and princess falling in love thing. And then they're also you know, talking about scientific principles and, and dealing with death. There's a lot of like, like powerful moments in the movie that aren't in your typical kids' movie. And then this thing is just it seems kind of out of place that they've just fallen in love. Uh, but anyway, they, they fall in love. He actually has to, to kiss her in order to wake her up from a, a cursed sleep, much like Snow White. Uh, but then once the quest is over, he has to go back to his own time. And so he just sort of disappears. He actually, that's the, the end of the movie. He kisses her, but as soon as she wakes up, he fades away. And then she's like, where is he? Oh, he's gone back to his own time. And, and uh, so then the last scene is him back where he started. He's in this pawn shop. He was trying to, to get money from this guy he knows that runs this pawn shop uh, to, uh, to fund this board game. And they, they, they're friends, and they're playing the board game. And then he was sort of sucked into it, sort of like Jumanji or Zathura, but, you know, the fantasy version. But that's also, that's not my crossover, by the way. If you want to see me crossover a movie with Jumanji, actually, I believe the very first episode of this podcast, Wild Beast, I did a crossover with Jumanji. But I'm not doing that today. But anyway, that was sort of the setup. And then he goes back to the pawn shop. But all of a sudden, he has one of those magical artifacts that they were given for their adventure. In this case, it was a, a shield. And it's like a solid gold shield. And all, and it seems like he doesn't remember his time in the fantasy world. I'm kind of adding that. I'm, I'm assuming that, and that's a part of all of my pitches, that, that he was brought back to the, the, the present with no memory, but he seems to have the shield. He doesn't seem to remember why he has it, but he's like, well, what if I pawn this? And the pawn shop guy's like, well, oh, this will, you can live off this for years and, and fund your, your board game. And then all of a sudden, Melisande comes in, and she has the, the crown of the bad guy, Omadon. That was the, the quest was to defeat Omadon, but specifically his power was in his crown, uh, which... And I, I, I don't know, this also wasn't specific to the movie, but I'm kind of adding it in, where all the artifacts they got were gotten from one of the wizards, like the, the, the yellow wizard, who was like the, the wizard of peace and tranquility or something. He gave him, them a flute that if you play it, you can calm any beast, and eventually they use that to, to make the dragons all go to sleep. And then the the blue wizard, he was like he's like the wizard of the plains, like the, the of space and, and the depths of the ocean. And he gives him the shield, and I, I I don't think it has any special powers other than I think it can block magical curses or magical attacks or something. And they eventually use that to block one of Omadon's attacks. And this isn't really important to this pitch, but it's important to one later on. I'm kind of saying that these magical artifacts are specifically tied to the wizards who give them, and it's sort of the source of their power because. Omadon's crown is literally the source of his power. That's the thing they have to get in order to stop him. Uh, and eventually they... I, I guess I'll just spoil this now because it will come up later. The The way they defeat Omadon... Uh, I, know, I think I did say that. Yeah, he starts like reading off all of these sort of uh, scientific formula as if they're just sort of kind of magical incantations. And that's how he defeats the, wizard's ma the dark wizard's magic. Uh, but anyway, 
he's in that pawn shop, he's pawning the shield, and Melisande comes in, and she has the, the Dark Wizard's crown, presumably to pawn it as well. And as soon as they see each other, they seem to kind of magically recognize each other as if, you know, all of a sudden that, that amnesiac curse is broken. I'm saying it's not the case. I'm saying they have reconstructed memories, maybe. They still both think that they're present-day people. They don't remember the magical world. Peter Dickinson's obviously from this world, so he has most of his own memories. But the idea is Melisande decided she wanted to follow Peter Dickinson into the future. She wanted to be with him. So her father, the the, the green nature wizard, uh, Coralinus, decided, okay, I'll send you there, but... I have to change your memories. You won't remember anything about this place because you know you can't live in that world and, and miss this world of magic. So you're going to be seeded into the future world as a present-day person, and I'm going to give you this crown to maybe maybe the crown was to help her find Peter. Maybe that like the 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 two artifacts connected each other, whatever. But anyway, she finds him. They meet, recognize each other, and they're in love. And they and they're rich because he's pawned this this artifact that I don't know if it's still magical in the present day, but you know, basically, presumably they both pawn those artifacts and then they go off to be in love. And so that sets up the sequel where this pawn shop owner has these magical artifacts and he doesn't necessarily know they're magical. He doesn't believe in magic, but. He tries the crown on, uh, just sort of arbitrary, just for fun, you know? Oh, this this weird, magical, creepy-looking crown, and it infects him. Basically, like, the last vestiges of, of the evil wizard Omadon's consciousness is still in the crown, just enough to turn him into this, like, fucking Gollum-like creature. And it, that's not a, really a part of the movie, except that's, like, the setup. That would be, like, the prologue to the movie, where uh, it, it unleashes this kind of weird, magical event and the government comes in, these scientists come in, sort of like fringe, like it's part of the pattern. This this pawn shop became this like weird maybe thicket of, thor- of black thorns or something, or zombies came out of it or something. And then they find the infected pawn shop owner and this crown that seems to be the source of all of this shit. And then you find out this government agency is sort of like, like the CIA or the Men in Black or something, where it's like, but they investigate magical shit. And so you have our two main characters who are just sort of frolicking, you know, discovering their love for each other, and then the government is in possession of this dark magical artifact they're experimenting with. And I sort of envision this part of the storyline as, if you've ever seen Hellraiser 2, there was like the psychiatrist who was experimenting on the girl who could, I think she was like able to perceive the, the Cenobite's hell dimension or in some capacity, or maybe she was like a like an autistic prodigy that could like solve the puzzle box really fast. I can't really remember that movie that well, but... Anyway, the, that, the idea is that Professor knew about the Cenobites and he wanted to become one of them. He wanted to exploit the, the sort of dark mystical energies of the Cenobites' hell realm for his own purposes. And so the idea is the lead scientist who has this crown as an experimenting with it. He believes in magic, but he, much like Peter Dickinson, he wants to you know reduce it to a science, one that he can control and exploit the power of. And in the process, he opens up portals all around the country, or maybe just all around the city, maybe just sort of New York-centric, or wherever it is, and, and magical creatures start sort of spilling into our world, and that includes a lot of the characters from the original film who are now on a new quest to figure out why all these portals are opening up, why all the, the magic of the of the magical realm that is now separate from the human realm is seeping out into the human realm, and maybe that's causing like the good magical creatures to be perverted into evil ones. So maybe 
that's that's sort of the twist on it. It's not like evil monsters, but it's traditionally good-seeming creatures, but perverted into evil forms, and they're they're, they're invading present-day New York. And so the, the the good characters, you know, Orion, Neville, Smythe, the Knight, uh, Danielle, the Archeress, uh, Giles, the Elf, and, and so forth. They all they all kind of come for another quest to break the their their two fellow members of, of their their quest team, Peter and Melisande, out of their their amnesia, remind them of the world they come from, or the other uh, the world she came from, and that he is a part of, uh, so that they can help them them stop this threat. So you have sort of like Enchanted, or at least like the second half of that movie, where like all the the shit from the fantasy world is invading uh, the the modern world there's one brief scene in the original movie where uh, they go to this bar called hell's way and that that'll be another one of my pitches but it's like a bar like right on the border of where the the evil wizard omadon's lair is or his his land and and everything else and it's sort of like like in the right in the middle uh, kind of like casablanca but in a fantasy world and there are these weird robed creatures that that come from Obadon's realm and they're I guess they're just like the citizens of Obadon's realm but they're kind of these evil hooded like like sort of full-sized Jawas or if you ever saw those the guys from uh I was gonna say I was gonna compare them to the little guys from Phantasm I don't know why I'm starting from shorter people to to taller versions of them I'm sure they're just if it's just an adult in a cloak with glowing red eyes that I could have just easily said I don't know why I needed that high that height differential but anyway uh, they were just sort of in the background, and it was just a, an explanation for where that place was. They were like, "Oh, these are from that. These guys are from that realm. Oh, how would you serve them?" And he sort of explains that he's sort of in the center of it all. But anyway, you could you could find these like hooded figures kind of becoming this secret army. They're like on the subway, and you just see like three hooded figures with glowing red eyes looking at you, like and just a lot a lot of imagery stuff like that. And then ultimately, the the solution to the problem would be kind of questioning. Coralinus's whole idea of separating the world of magic and the world of men. The idea is he didn't have enough faith in the two sides to work together or ultimately resolve their differences. He just assumed magic would be destroyed, but he also didn't want the world of science and the world of men to be destroyed, so he, he said, let's segregate them. But of course, segregation is never a good thing. Integration always is always the better thing. People working together. So uh, the idea is there's this alternate reality that like a potential reality that never actually existed because Coralinus made the wrong decision to separate the two, but there's an alternate reality where magic and science were synthesized and it and they evolved along with each other and successfully. So that you know you could have cars and you could have you know witches on broomsticks in the same traffic pattern, you know, and and that exists, but it only exists like I said, you know, in in theory. But Melisande has these visions. She she had these visions of, of their adventures, and she's having visions of this alternate reality. And so the, the solution to the problem is merging the two realities and kind of questioning Coralinus's philosophy and then ultimately proving it to be incorrect. And then you can set up further sequels where magic and science are together. Sort of like if you ever saw the, the, the lost pilot to Ronald D. Moore's uh, 17th Precinct where it was like magic evolved instead of science. This is sort of like a merging of the two. Uh, and I'm of course thinking that it's like a like a modern fantasy steampunk kind of thing. And I just I have this image in my head of the scientists experimenting with this dark crown and like thorns and, and magical prehensile vines and shit are coming out of it. But it's in the center of like a CERN style. Uh, what, do you, what do you call that? A, a particle accelerator? The the atom smasher thing where shit's spinning around? You see it on the Flash TV show all the time. Uh, it's like one of those things, but at the center of it is this magical thing that's growing in power as they're experimenting on it. I just think that's a cool image, and, and that would be sort of the, the, the structure around which the story is based. Uh, so anyway, that's my sequel, and uh, that gets me to prequel 
And for the prequel, they I'm, I'm going into something that I don't, I don't think I mentioned in the review. They, they talk about Peter Dickinson is this man of science from what is from their standpoint the future, and he's the first in a long line of, of this family that is a man of science. And his family dates back to the time of the magical world and to the far past of this magical past. He Basically, his long-lost ancestor, uh, long before apparently even Coralinus was, was operating, was a, a warrior, a knight, and he was the one who tamed the dragons. So apparently before him, uh, the dragons were savage beasts, and he taught them to speak, and he tamed them. And uh, I would just tell that, that story. I would have the, the ancestor of, of, of Peter Dickinson. I'm calling him Dixon, sort of a, a tribute to the other guy who wrote Dragon and the George, but just that's his phone, just one name, Dixon or Sir Dixon maybe. And uh, the idea is he's this knight who, uh, he's, a, he's a dragon hunter by trade. And of course, dragons and humans are at war with each other or as much as, much as you can be at war with a, a, a species of, of animal that, that isn't necessarily thoughtful. They're intelligent, but it's like a reptilian intelligence. It's, it's just sort of self-preservation and feeding. So they just see all humans as enemies and, and they're fighting each other. And, and Dixon's whole family, including his wife, his loving bride, is murdered by a dragon or killed and eaten by a dragon. I, again, I don't know if you could say it's murder if they're not necessarily conscious but uh, he swears vengeance on the dragons and he goes on this mission not just to kill individual dragons but to kill all dragons and he it's in order to go on this mission he needs to find like the mother dragon the first dragon who is supposedly out there somewhere they don't know where it is it might even be a myth they don't know or nobody knows anyway but uh, they say if you can slay the mother dragon, anything that happens to the mother dragon happens to all the other dragons. So if you kill her, they all die. And so uh, he goes on this quest in order to find the mother dragon and kill it out of revenge. But along the way, in order to find it and, and ultimately kill it, he has to find these wise sages. And these are the Brotherhood of the Great Antiquity, the, 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 the four wizards that we meet in the original movie. There's Coralinus, the green wizard of nature, uh, Solarius, the blue wizard of the plains, Lotezal, the, the yellow wizard of, of peace and tranquility, and then Omidon, the, the, the red wizard of, of evil. And anyway, so he has to find all of them. And at this point, they're not the Brothers of Antiquity. Like I said, I think the Brotherhood... It's not a real brotherhood because they're they're not actually like the same. They they like they come from the same mother. I think they're just brotherhood in the way that like a, an order of monks is a brotherhood. Uh, but at this point, they're not part of that organization. They're just separate wizards, and they're kind of neophytes experimenting with their magical power. And he has to find all of them because yeah, I talked about those sort of totems that that are the source of their powers. He has to use them all together in order to find and kill this dragon. So he finds each wizard as they're training to be like a supreme wizard and he has to figure out some way in order to to borrow their totem and and use that totem's magical power uh for his own benefit and some of them maybe force him to fight them for it some of them give him a test in order to take it and i think in this one you would you would find out because you don't see uh Coralinus that if he has one everyone else has a clear sort of object that they're associated with this one reveals that melisande isn't actually his daughter. She's a, a living being, but she's she is the artifact that is his totem. She's the source of his magical power, and he just raised her as his daughter. But she's really this like sort of like the key from Buffy that you know, became her sister. She was sort of something like that. Uh, and and the idea is her visions lead him to where the mother dragon is. The the shield obviously protects him from the mother dragon's various magical attacks. The flute is to put it to sleep, and then he can slay it with with a sword that or with the, maybe the crown is something he has to wear in order to, to make his, his, uh, his killing blow strong enough to kill a dragon, so that the crown of darkness. Uh, so that's sort of why he needs all of these things. And, but by the time he collects them and the lessons he learns along the way, 
eventually leads him to when he finds the mother dragon, he sees her as not the evil creature that you know he he's had in his brain this whole time, or the, the representation of what he considers dragons to be, which are evil monsters. He sees her as you know the mother of babies, and sees her as you know his wife, who was the mother of babies, and and he decides like like my wife wouldn't want me to kill this creature who isn't you know, a threat to me or an enemy to me. I sought her out and to, for me to do this in my, my dead wife's name would be to sully her name. So instead, when he puts her, the, the, he kind of communes with the dragon using the same magical ability to teach her to, to speak and to tame her essentially, not in a creepy, like male privilege way, like, like a me too situation but with a dragon, but you know, in the way that, that the legend says he tamed the dragons, he, uh, maybe just uses magic to, to make her make all of the other dragons peaceful, intelligent creatures, which is what they are at the beginning of, uh, of the flight of dragons film. Uh, like I said, the, the evil wizard, Omadon, puts a spell over some of the dragons to make them evil, but I think that's, you know, that's a different thing. I think their natural state after this point, after this sort of magical communion, uh, is uh, as peaceful creatures. And you can also lay in a bunch of other shit, like maybe he fights the ogre, but this time he has three full eyes and two legs, but he, but Dixon is the guy that severs the leg and pokes the eye out. Uh, and, you know, he can kind of set up various things about this world. Maybe he meets the guy that ultimately founds the, the Hell's Way Inn that, that sits between the two uh, lands of the realm. Maybe we even set up that force of the Great Antiquity, which in the original movie it kind of presents itself as this tree that magically grows from the ground and that's when then says, you know, this is the person you need to find, this this great, great descendant of Dixon. Well, it's, he's, his name isn't Dixon in the, in the original movie. I'm, I'm throwing that in there. But maybe this force hadn't coalesced yet and it needed this order of the antiquity, these four brothers to come together. And so the force was sort of manipulating Dixon in, in order to do that uh, for its own benefit to create this sort of peaceful order of wizards. And so that that's set up as well. So all of the, the, the threads kind of come together. So that anyway, that's, that's what I think all good prequels do. And that's my prequel. And that gets me to spinoff. And this is where I actually have a lot of ideas for this. Because like I said, I like so many of the characters in this movie that I think a lot of them could work well in spinoffs. And the first one, I'm, I'm saying uh, Orion Neville Smith. I love this character. I'll get to, when I talk about who I'm going to cast him as in, in my reboot, you'll kind of understand why I like the character based on the casting choice I make. But in any case, he's just this kind of fop, sort, of, sort of foppish, maybe not even foppish, but just very traditional, you know, British kind of knight. He reminded me of a non-homicidal version of Sweeney from Oblivion, if you, if you listened to that episode a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, I, it's just... It, I, I really enjoyed this character, and I felt like he, he got a little bit of short shrift because of what I'm thinking is the division of the, the, the drafts of the script, where like I was talking about Melisande and Danielle possibly being the same character, and him kind of being in love with both of them, but neither of them. So I'm just kind of streamlining that and saying he is in love with Danielle, which is essentially the case by the end of the movie, and it's Orion Neville Smith and Danielle the Archeress just going on fucking adventures as a married couple going on magical quests. I just think that's an interesting sort of like, I was going to say Moonlighting, but I guess they weren't married. Or did they? I guess they got married like in, in the middle of the series. I never watched Moonlighting. I don't really have an example of like a husband and wife team of, of anything that I can apply to this fantasy context, at least off the top of my head. I'm sure there is. Uh, Remington Steel wasn't that. Was Hardcastle and McCormick. I'm just pick, I'm throwing out names of... TV shows from the, like the 80s that I've never seen, so I don't even know if they work as references. Some some reference point for a husband and wife adventure team. 
that's really lame, but that's what I'm saying. Uh, and I, I don't really have anything more to that. I mean, it would just be a week-to-week adventure show. I'm envisioning that as sort of like – I'm, I'm just going to say it. It's a series because, again, all my, my examples that probably didn't fit anyway are series. I'm saying this is a week-to-week series where it's sort of like Hercules or Xena, something like that, like just a wacky pulp fantasy show. I mean, if you want to do it as a movie, you could as well. There were Hercules and Xena movies. I believe there was an animated film. I think that might even be on my list to watch, the, the animated Hercules and Xena movie. I don't know if that's a spinoff of those shows or if that was like a pilot for those shows or if it was a pilot for an animated series version or what, but I know it exists. I actually have it on my, my hard drive somewhere. Uh, but anyway, that's what I would pitch for them. But I'm also thinking, uh, I, I mentioned The Wolf. I want to say his name was Arga or something like that, but he's just this he's this wolf that they find. He helps him out. He kills the, the Queen's Sand Merc, and then he, he's on the journey, but he knows them previously. Uh, oh, I forgot to mention Gorbash. Gorbash is the dragon. Uh, he's the one that, that uh, Dickinson merges with, and the wolf, Arga, has a, a previous relationship with Gorbash. They re- he recognizes him, but at that point, Gorbash has the mind of Peter Dickinson, who doesn't know this talking wolf, so he doesn't recognize him. But anyway... They mention, like, oh, weren't you dead? And then he's like, oh, yeah, I was dead fighting this weird sea monster, this giant octopus or something. And then they do a flashback to uh, Solarius, the blue wizard. Uh, he's finding another person for their quest, and he shows he finds this this wolf's corpse at the bottom of the ocean. And remember, Solarius is the, the wizard of the depths as well. So he goes to him, and he says, like, I can give you new life if you help these guys out and save them. And, of course, you know these guys anyway, so you'd want to save them anyway. So he, he's resurrected from his watery grave, and he comes and, and helps save these, these adventurers and then joins their adventure. And I'm saying he's got this rich history that we only get to get glimpses of. That's a spinoff in itself. Or I'm calling it Lone Wolf. And it's just like him fucking fighting monsters. But I'm saying I'm, I'm applying this. This is all me. I'm making this up. This is his origin. He was a human warrior at one point. He was, but not like a like a noble one. He was like a fucking badass, like Boba Fett bounty hunter type. Only he hunted monsters. Uh, so I think the Witcher from the uh, the Witcher is that the those games, the Witcher games. I think he's that too. At least I've never played those games. I've just sort of seen him on t- on uh, the internet. But I'm saying he's kind of like that. And he had a wolf as his companion, his trained wolf, his the only beast that he ever trusted and the only other thing that he ever trusted you know, he doesn't really live around people he just hunts monsters for money when he needs it uh, but anyway this guy came across the wrong fucking monster some witch thing and he killed her but in her death throes she cursed him and well killed him but his consciousness was was bound to his wolf and they became one single entity essentially the same spell it, well, it's a botched spell in the context of the original film that turns or that merges Peter Dickinson with uh, Gorbash the dragon but in this it was done deliberately to merge him with his wolf uh but of course he he can't break out of it he's stuck with her but he doesn't really want to because his his nat- normal form is dead so if he separates from the wolf he just separates into into a dead body anyway so he's sort of stuck in this form and still hunting monsters but now like part of the curse is if he can kill every Maybe not every monster, but like maybe there's a specific class of like really powerful monster, like demigod monsters or something. I'm I'm saying they're t- they're called titans, and if he can kill all the titans, he can get his human body back, a living human body, and you know, he's not gonna die if he tries to separate from his wolf form. Uh, so he's called the Titan Eater, and he's traveling from land to land, sort of like uh, um, uh, Shadow of the Colossus, killing these giant monsters and these these evil creatures uh, one at a time as a badass monster bounty hunter wolf and i feel like those words should apply to every movie uh so anyway 
that's my that's my other spinoff. And then the only other one I had was uh, I was talking keep talking about that Hell's Way. And in the in the movie, they go to this place. I think it's that's what it's called, Hell's Way. It's like this this inn at the border wall of the 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 normal magical world and the dark lands that that Omidon controls. And it's like I said, it's sort of like Casablanca, like it's at the center of everything, but it's a neutral territory. And in the movie, it gets destroyed. The ogre that Omidon sends after them. And it's an ogre that normally lives in like an adjacent territory, but it, and again, it has a name, I forget the name, but he comes over and he destroys the inn, he kills the innkeeper, like I said, there's death in this movie, it's a fucking kids movie, but then like somebody will fucking up and die, and they, they, he takes everybody, and they, they have this big dragon fight, dragon versus ogre, and, and eventually the, the dragon kills the ogre, but Smurgle dies in the process, because Gorbash can't handle him one on one, so I'm saying, this, this place, this hell's way, which is in rubble at the end of it, it's like a, there's like a magical curse around the lands. Uh, I mentioned that other uh, the other wizard, Lo, I think it's Lotazal Lo is his name, and he's the the god of of tranquility and balance and peace. And so so the idea is unbeknownst to most people, this is his domain. He created this here as sort of an emblem or or, or symbol of of what his power can do: peace between warring nations and and neutrality. So this place can't be destroyed. It reforms itself if it is ever destroyed because, you know, it, it exists based on the balance that it creates. So, and the, the innkeeper doesn't even know that, but he's bound in this sort of Groundhog's Day way that he's not even really cognizant of, where he's just, he's the, and maybe it's a punishment, but again, he doesn't realize it, or it's kind of a karmic thing where he's he's there in order to, to absolve himself of past wrongs or, or, or right past wrongs by serving this penance, uh, even if he's not necessarily, like, aware of it. But uh, he's he he gets revived and he's still the 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 proprietor of this this tavern. But the ogre, because the ogre killed the guy and died on the grounds, he comes back to life and is bound by the same curse that keeps this place from ever being destroyed. But now he's bound to protect Hell's Way, this newly built Hell's Way. And I'm saying again, this is a TV show where it's just set in this bar and the various goings-on and disreputable characters that show up and, and conflicts and various things surrounding this fantasy tavern. Because you that's the thing in fantasy movies. A lot of times you'll start out in the tavern, and that's or in D&D campaigns. That's where you'll get the... Uh, the 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 you know the mission that you're on but then you always leave and you go off on your adventure so i'm saying let's do a fantasy movie that stays in the in the tavern and it's this particular tavern guarded by a giant magical ogre uh, and that's that's all my spin-offs I, I don't usually do more than one but there's there's three for you and that gets me to crossover and for the crossover i, I mentioned it briefly in my uh, my discussion of, of the movie in my review but I, I tried to not hint at the fact that this was going to be what my crossover was. I'm crossing it over with the movie Labyrinth. If you've ever seen the Jim Henson, uh, David Bowie movie Labyrinth about uh, this young girl played by Jennifer Connelly who hates her parents and her little brother, baby brother and wishes that her baby brother would be taken away and the Jareth the Goblin King in this magical realm hears her and says, "I'll take fine, I'll take your, your little brother away from you. But of course she didn't mean it. She chases after him. She goes into the titular labyrinth, meets all these magical creatures and eventually gets her her baby back from evil goblin king David Bowie and his massive package. If you've never seen the movie, he wears tights through the whole thing, and he either wears a giant codpiece or possibly no giant codpiece at all. I'm inclined to believe the latter, and he just has a huge dick. And by the way, that's also a kid's movie. Uh, but anyway... <laughs> 
So you, you have you have Labyrinth. That's the setup for the movie. And my my thing is, this is just in the world of Flight of Dragons. Jareth the Goblin King is Omadon the evil wizard's son who wants revenge against uh, his father's death. And Jennifer Connelly and her little brother are the two teenage and baby, respectively, children of Peter Dickinson and Melisande, who came to the present day at the end of the movie and got amnesia. They think they're present-day people. They don't know about their magical past. They settled down. They had kids. And Jareth, who is the kid of, of Omadon, remember, he has this curse that he's wanted to be able to enact in order to take over the magical world. And he... and. He, the idea is he built the labyrinth on Obadon's land in order to protect himself so nobody could take his power, but he wants to, to create this curse to spread across the land. But in order to do that, he has to corrupt one of the, the descendants of Dickinson uh, and, and have them betray their family. And that's what he wanted to do with the little baby. He wanted to convince the baby, like raise him as his own so that he would defy his, his family, turn against them, and then that would be the final ingredient of this curse. And so he does that. He goes back for the kid. Now this is like several years into the future of Labyrinth where, uh, again, the, the parents still don't remember their magical past and they're just these kind of yuppie, really spoiled parents. And uh, the the baby boy, the baby brother, is now like, I don't know, 16, 17, like a petulant teenager. Jareth comes back, sways him to the dark side, sufficient enough to be able to enact his curse, and he inverts all of the other wizards. So he turns the world dark, and so, like, Coriolanus, the, the, the wizard of nature, is now the wizard of, like, industry and pollution, and uh, the, the wizard of balance is now the wizard of, of chaos and, and deceit and corruption, and the, the wizard of space is now the wizard of imprisonment, and he's, you know, he creates this massive prison and is this very sort of insular character. Like, he inverts all the, the good, positive virtues of their magic powers to dark ones and so that they join him in this sort of dark brotherhood and he perverts the great antiquity and so the idea is that uh, as, as soon as that happens uh, the amnesia dissipates and the uh, Melisande and Peter Dickinson realize that they're you know who they are and they, they decide they need to help the, the magical world. they need to go back and then their their daughter uh, sneaks uh, sneaks along with them to go back to the magical world uh, to, to save them. And of course they find all their old friends and Jennifer Connelly finds all her old friends and they team up into this massive uh, quest team in order to take down Jareth and bring back the little brother, get him back on their side so that they can break the curse and, and save all the wizards and all the magic and all that shit. Uh, so that's my, <laughs> that's my crossover. All that shit. Uh, and I, I think that's pretty good. I think that's a pretty good way of integrating these two properties. Uh, and that gets me to Reboot, the gritty Reboot. Uh, who would I have re redirect this or, or recast in it if, they were, if it was made today? And uh, the choice seemed obvious to me. I didn't even have an alternate or anything. like I usually talk about like the, the other avenues I was going to go down. But this, I had this right away. Ridley Scott. Uh, Ridley Scott, you probably know him mostly for like the Alien movies, but before, well, I was gonna say before that, no, it was after that. He he did Legend. If you've ever saw Legend, it's a really awesome fantasy movie from the '80s with Tom Cruise and Tim Curry and unicorns and Satan, and uh, one of the really most most visually interesting fantasy movies of that era. And he did it, and then he never did anything else really like that. He kind of did a lot more of the Alien stuff, and obviously he's come back recently and done really shitty Alien sequels. Because there's, sh- and it's not his fault. There shouldn't be Alien sequels. He's trying to beat a dead horse, and it's just not working for him. So I'm saying he goes back to his fantasy roots. He does the live-action remake of A Flight of Dragons, or sorry, The Flight of Dragons. And they actually did try to do a live-action remake of this, uh, I guess, a couple years ago, but it's it's since become a defunct project. But I'm saying Ridley Scott takes over. 
And uh, you know, I mean, I'd say do it pretty much like he like he did Legend, only just with with modern technology. Uh, as for the cast, I've I've recast everybody in this. There's a huge ensemble cast, and I have ideas for all of them. Uh, for the main character, for Peter Dickinson. Uh, he was voiced by John Ritter, so I'm saying you bring in his son Jason Ritter. I think he works as a leading man. He's he's handsome enough. He you know, he's kind of boyish. He's got that boyish charm. I think he would work. Uh, for Melisande, I'm saying uh, Saoirse Ronan because she has that really blank fucking unmoved face, and Melisande is kind of a boring character. If you want to do the thing where you merge her with the Danielle the Archeress character, but I'm, I'm for this purposes of this, I'm saying we don't do that. We just keep her the way she was. And for, for Danielle the Archeress, I'm saying Jessica Chastain. She's a redhead, just like the character. I think she's very sort of strong and built and powerful. I think she could play that, pull off that character. And I kind of set this up earlier. Uh, for, for Orion Neville Smythe, my, my choice is... Charto Copley, but specifically, if you've ever seen Hardcore Henry, at the uh, Charto Copley plays this professor who has like all these multiple forms, these like robot bodies that he goes into, and they all have a different personality. But the final one, or the most important one, is like this like stiff upper lip British soldier guy, and I'm saying he plays that character, but as this knight, Orion Neville Smythe, and that's why I love the character of Orion Neville Smythe because I love Charto Copley and Hardcore Henry. It's one of my favorite movies of the past ten years. A lot of people hated it. I recommend you you tell those people to shove it up their ass and go see it because it's a great movie hardcore henry but uh, i'm saying charteau copley uh, as this sort of stiff upper lip british knight orion neville neville smythe uh for uh, for giles the the elf like i said he's sort of like a hobbit i i threw out peter dinklage again i feel like maybe that's even a little insulting where it's like well he's a little person how about peter dinklage we like him it's like yeah he does a lot of stuff where it, it doesn't matter to the narrative that he's a little person so like it seems like it's an insult to just give him all the little person roles but i can't think of another one offhand other than like warwick davis who's way too old so yeah that that's just what i'm going with uh but anyway, uh, that gets me to uh, Coralinus the Wizard. I'm saying uh, old-ass Tom Baker, uh, the fourth Doctor Who, or the fourth Doctor from Doctor Who. Uh, he looks very much like the character, and he's obviously a wacky mystic himself. Uh, I didn't really cast the other one, the other uh, uh, wizards except for Omidon because he's the main villain. I'm saying Brendan Gleeson. Omidon is a very big, sort of gross, troll-like creature. Uh, he actually, at the, the end of the movie, he takes on this really creepy, monstrous form that's really cool. His dragon... His, they, they all have these dragon familiars. His dragon gets killed, and uh, then he grows like this hydra-like body where the same dragon comes out of his back like five times. And uh, so I'm saying Brennan Gleason, he's this kind of angry, just monstrous force of nature. Uh, and uh, for the voice of Arga, uh, I'm saying Avery Brooks, uh, Captain Sisko from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He has this very sort of sleek but still powerful voice. And I, I threw this, this out here. This is the only other casting I, I thought of. For, for the, the innkeeper of Hell's Way, I'm saying Jack Black. And the only reason I'm saying that is, for the, for the ogre, I'm saying Kyle Gass in motion capture. So you have both of them in the same sequence, and then Kyle Gass kills Jack Black, who is maybe also in motion capture. Because like he he's not like a dwarf or an elf or anything specific, but he is some kind of diminutive magical creature of sort. I think he has like pointed ears. So I'm saying you do a similar thing where you put like his face on a CGI body, Jack Black's, and then Kyle Gass's face on a giant ogre body kills him and then gets killed himself. So that's, that's my recasting, and that's my reboot for... Uh, the Flight of Dragons live-action remake. Uh, so that gets me to the back half, which is all the stuff that isn't movies, so like TV shows and stuff, and I start with the TV show. And for this, um, I, you know, I, I don't really have a, a set structure for it. My immediate example would be, if, you ever, if you've ever seen uh, Adam Strange, the comic book character, 
this is sort of like a fantasy version of that. Adam Strange, he's like connected to this other planet and he's sent there like six months out of the year, like randomly or not randomly. I mean, it's like every six months he's on there and then on earth and he's got a wife there and he's got a life and, a, and missions that he goes on, but he always goes back and I don't think he has control over it. And so like he's missing his family half of the year. So I'm saying it's something like that, but in a fantasy context where, you know, Peter Dickinson travels to this world and then maybe the first season is like his first adventure. And it's generally what we see in the movie. He, he's hunting, this wizard and and finding and recruiting this team to go on a quest with him but then he falls in love with melisandre but then at the end of the of the first season he's forced back to his own world but instead of her just following him it becomes a thing where like he's away from her and then he has to go go back for another quest he's forced back there on another quest years later but she's in a relationship with with orion neville smythe and then it becomes like this love quartet where like Danielle is in love with Orion, Orion's in love with Melisande, Peter Dickinson's also in love with Melisande, maybe she's in love with him too, but she's in this relationship. And the idea is anyone can stay in one realm forever, but they have to completely renounce their other realm. They can never go back. So it's the idea is does he renounce his realm or does she renounce hers? And then maybe they're they're at that point almost where like one is going to make that decision, but neither one wants to make it for the other. But then uh, you know something happens and they decide against it, and, and sort of like the like the love triangle kind of spins its various circles. And then eventually you you would obviously resolve it, and then you would have you know Melisande in the modern world. And then if you want to do another season after that, maybe you do something akin to what I pitched for the sequel, where magical creatures start seeping into the modern world, and they have to maybe police it. Maybe it becomes almost like a procedural where they're abducting supernatural. creatures creatures and sending them to the magic world so they don't pollute the, the world of man and maybe the other characters kind of come along with them or something like that. I don't know how that would work. Maybe they resolve the rules of, of having to renounce your 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 position so that people can travel freely. As a result, they kind of create an agency to protect both worlds from each other or something like that. I don't know. You can go all different directions with it, but that's basically my idea uh, for the TV show. Uh, that gets me to video game and my original thought was like an old school, just sort of JRPG, sort of like Final Fantasy or something like that, or Hydlide, where you, you recruit your team, you fight monsters in a turn-based combat. Very simple. But the more I thought about it, you know, so much of this movie is about the, the physics and the mechanics of how dragons would work realistically. So, And I don't think we've ever had like a full-on dragon simulator. I know you've had games like Panzer Dragoon where you fly as a dragon or live as a dragon. Obviously Spyro the Dragon is another, but you don't really get the feel of living as a dragon. So I'm saying you, you do a really complicated like control scheme where you really have to learn how to operate this dragon and, and function as a dragon. And then I thought on top of that, you can include the RPG elements. You make it an MMO, but you make it an MMO for, like, uh, have you ever heard of, like, the other kind? Like, they're these people that sort of identify as, like, animals or mystical creatures in the same way that, like, trans people identify as a different gender. They identify as a different species or even a different, you know, kind of thing that doesn't even exist. And I'm not equating the two in terms of, like, like seriousness. I'm not, even, I'm not diminishing it either. I'm not saying other kind are fucking weird and should, should not believe what they believe or identify as they want to identify but you know, I'm not saying it's as profound as that, but that is a thing. And it's sort of like furry taken to a weird kind of philosophical level, I guess. Again, I don't want to say that to diminish it. I don't want to insult people like that. But uh, the idea is it'd be like an MMO for those kind of people where like you can create your own dragon form and you can you can intermingle with people in your sort of human form. And then if you want to go out on adventures, you become a dragon and you fly out, but you really have to learn how to do it. You have to like inflate the hydrogen in your stomach and breathe fire in order to release it, to alter your direction and all these other things you have to take all these things into account and you have to really learn how to do it right and, and then like i said it's a dragon simulator element in this massive 
furry other kind MMO uh, substructure. Uh, but anyway, that, that's my pitch for the video game. And that gets me to number eight on my 10-point plan. That's the merchandise. And I feel like this is obvious. The movie kind of did it for me. Flight of Dragons, the home game. Uh, the board game that, that uh, Peter Dickinson was pitching in the pawn shop. Uh, the Flight of Dragons board game. And they, they don't really go into a lot of the rules, but they do have, like, one of the guys apparently plays, like, it's two to presumably four players because you play as one of the wizards, but one always has to be the evil wizard, and then one can cho- the other players can choose from the other three wizards. And, and then your control pieces are like the other characters. The, like, if you're one of the good wizards, you can control one of the good characters, like the knight or, the, or, or Peter Dickinson or the dragon. I mean, I guess he didn't put himself in the game at that point, but maybe he did afterwards. I don't know, when he finally published it after he got the money from pawning that magical shield that he didn't know was magical, uh, he, he put himself in the game. Uh, but anyway, and then of course Amadon would control the various monsters. He can send the ogre after you or the acid worm or all these different things. Uh, so that, that would be the board game. Uh, and that gets me to uh, number nine, which is everyone's favorite segment, and that's the porn parody. This is inspired by my love of porn parody titles of old, where they actually took the title and made like a stupid pun name out of it. Now, of course, they never do that. It's just whatever it is a porn parody or this ain't whatever it is. So I want to bring back the golden age of porn parody names. And so I I convert the the movie I watch into a porn parody. And this time, this might be the stupidest one yet. Sometimes I'm proud of these. Most of the time I'm not. This time, I'm not exactly ashamed. I'm not exactly proud. I'm kind of in the middle. I don't know how how anybody should react to this. And I have to explain it a little bit because it's going to sound really offensive when I say it based on what I'm equating it to. I'm just going to... Fine. I'm not going gonna, gonna to stop adding caveats. I'm just going to throw it out. The Flight of Dragons. I'm turning it into The Height of Drag Queens. I know. That sounds weird. What I'm saying is it's people who have a fetish for really tall transvestites. So and and when I say trans, because like drag queen is different from transvestite, and that's different from transsexual, and uh, very all these other things. I understand that, but the thing you got to realize is porn does not have the sensitivities of the modern woke world. They still use the term tranny in a lot of their stuff. Hey, look at this tranny porn. So this is tranny porn, and again, we don't make the distinctions that you would make in real life to to have respect for real people. It's just gross and dirty, and it's uh, confirming to our our baser natures. And, and so this is the height of drag queens. And of course, they're, like I said, they're transvestites or transsexuals, whatever they are. As long as they can, they can fuck a dude or a lady or another transsexual, uh, they, they are, but they're called drag queens in the context of this movie, but specifically just very, very tall ones. Like I'm saying six feet or taller. And obviously, of course, then they fuck. So that's the height of drag queens. My porn parody for the flight of dragons. A little conceptual. A little convoluted, but I think it works. And that gets me to the end of the podcast, the last section, and that's the drinking game. That's where I I tell you the drinking game that you can play while you're watching the movie. And I I preface this, most of the time I forget to say this until after, so this time I'm going to remember and preface it and say, don't try this at home. This is for entertainment purposes only. I don't drink. I don't think you should either. I'm not going to judge you, tell you how to live your life, but just drink responsibly, or at least don't blame me if you don't. The drinking game. I'm saying anytime you see somebody fucking die... In this kids movie, take a drink. Anytime you see like like the midichlorianness of, of dragons, take a drink. Uh, where like he like tries to establish a scientific basis for dragon shit. Uh, and then anytime a, a new person joins the party, because it happens sort of randomly throughout the movie. Anytime somebody goes like, "Hey, I just saw you adventuring. Can I adventure too?" Take a drink. So that's my drinking game. That's it, and that's the movie Flight of Dragons. I recommend it. Go see it. 
And uh, go see all of my sequels and prequels when they inevitably hit, listen to this podcast, when Hollywood checks in on this and decides to make them all, which I'm, I'm certain will happen someday. Uh, that's it. And the only thing left is to tell you the next thing I'm going to talk about. And the next movie, the, the next random category selected is classic film, which that's any movie prior to 1970, so 1969 and before. And the random movie that I selected for this was a movie called 4D Man, which it's a 60s sci-fi movie about a guy who conducts an experiment on himself, and I believe he can walk through walls or something to that effect, some crazy thing, but it eventually turns him into a monster, sort of like an Invisible Man riff, I think. And I believe it stars the guy who played Gary Seven in that episode of Star Trek where they try to spin off Gary Seven into his own show, but nobody liked it, so they never made the show. Uh, but anyway, that's 4D Man. That's going to be next week. And uh, until then, thank you for listening. This has been Headcanon, and as Johnny Red always says, walk on water, eat bullets, and shit out ice cream. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye.